0: Hey everyone, what's up? My name is River, and you're listening to SCU Buzz Podcast. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Hannah Beth Luke, a Southern Cross academic and researcher, and course coordinator of the Graduate Certificate in Regenerative Agriculture. Hannabeth is passionate about the intersection of communities and science and completed her PhD research on the social license surrounding coal seam gas developments in the northern rivers. As part of her interest in regenerative agriculture, Hannabeth's research includes addressing farmer resilience in the face of climate change, an issue that hits close to home following the flood events of 2022. Hannabeth has been involved in research monitoring the ongoing impacts of the floods in the northern rivers. Welcome to the podcast, Hanaveth. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me, uh, River. So I guess should we start off with, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your past and how you found yourself an interest in regenerative agriculture?
1: Crikey. uh, How far back do we go? (laughs) <laughs> well, look. I, I actually uh, first came to Southern Cross University uh, when I was twenty years old. I, I I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life back then, but I thought, well, I'll study environmental science at Southern Cross University. I just fell in love with this place you know, back back then, and and uh, did, I did my science degree. And by the end of that degree, I was thinking, well what is it about all this amazing research and development that's done but yet so many people are still just ignoring the science and particularly around climate change way back then and I thought I'd really I'm really interested in that whole communication around science how we engage people in science helping people to better understand it and eventually I came back to do my honours and I was sort of thinking you know science communication what what is it that I want to look at and I sort of watched the Gasland film at the time then I said to my supervisor, Associate Professor David Lloyd, I'd really like to use this case study. And he said, "Ah, oh, if you want to, it's going to be a big one. And that was just around the time that uh, the industry was developing through the Western Downs in uh, Southeast Queensland and was just making a start in the Northern Rivers and drill rigs started showing up on people's properties. And I quickly learned that the, the law states that the drilling company only has to consult with the owner of the farm within which that drilling rig needs to access and quite quickly we started sort of looking at what are the broader responsibilities of organizations and looking at social license to operate that may be one small bit of land but that underneath there is an aquifer that is access for uh, water and for thousands of people and farms so that's that's what led me into this work and I did about six years worth of research in northern rivers and i ended up just documenting the formation of the the social movement that emerged to protect waterways against coal seam gas development in this region and i also did nearly 100 interviews including many many in the western downs of queensland and i documented how a social license evolves for different people in society, so the farmers and the business people and other residents in the community, how they experience the impacts and benefits through the boom-bust cycle of mining. And what I saw there was that process is everything for people. And you know, so in terms of social license to operate, in terms of people's satisfaction with change processes, having a clear and equitable process, a transparent process was so, so important for people as they went through that transition. And indeed, in the Northern Rivers, as they decided whether they viewed that industry as viable here, which eventually they didn't. And the Met Gasco licence in the Northern Rivers was bought back for $25 million after a concerted social movement. So that sort of brought me to the end of my PhD and I found a lot of insights around social license but I was also very interested in this idea of resilience and it came to my attention that a lot of farmers who I'd worked very closely with through that PhD felt kind of forced to take on gas leases because of the drought because of other impacts that they'd been experiencing that may or may not have been linked to climate change And I thought, well, how can I work in a space that's going to support farmers to be as resilient as possible, to be able to reduce their vulnerabilities to climate shocks and knocks and be stronger environmentally, socially and economically. So that's when I started working with the Soil Cooperative Research Centre. And now I'm running a a large national farmer project, understanding exactly that, you know, what are farmers doing on their land? Are they undertaking practices that are going to help them build resilience? And and why? What are the drivers? What are the things that are supporting them to make change? And what are the barriers? And and what, what are their aspirations for the future?
0: Wow. Wow, that's incredible. That's a lot of work. And, and and how many years did you say that you worked on your PhD? Or you did you research for your PhD, sorry?
1: Yeah, uh, so the, the PhD research, it began in 2011 in my honours here. Yeah. And I did the first interviews in the Western Downs then yeah. um, with people who were businessmen, farmers, other residents, other landholders, and then I went back in 2013 and yeah. I did a whole bunch of interviews in the middle of the boom and then I went back actually right at the end of my PhD and it was a paper after my PhD, not the actual PhD,
0: <laughs> right, yeah.
1: looking at how people were going um, five years on and, and in 2016, the end of 2016, beginning of 2017, once the boom had gone bust how those different groups uh, were now perceiving the industry and crikey did it flip so so that was that research and I just after I sort of came out of the PhD I found myself being invited into international collaborations and I kept publishing because the information and data that I collected here there was parallel studies across three or four different continents. So I started publishing with other people who had done similar work and comparing our case studies and looking at, well, how do the different attributes of an industry and how it develops influence
0: community resilience? So that's how I ended up stepping into that space. Wow. Wow. There's lots of different intersections.
1: Indeed there are.
0: <laughs> so you've kind of, you have spoken a little bit then on how you moved into that regenerative agriculture space and working with farmers and, and kind of tracking, you know, their movements. So of why they buy into mining industries and, and things that affect our planet because of their various socioeconomic statuses and drought and all of those reasons, would you be able to tell us what is regenerative agriculture specifically and what is unique about it?
1: So regenerative agriculture, it doesn't like to define itself in, in many ways, but broadly it's, it's viewed differently by different people. The sum it's it's really just around practices, some of which have been undertaken for a long period of time, like no-till farming, but they come under a set of principles or approaches which are, for example, to keep the soil covered, to support biodiversity and ecology on the farm, which will in turn reduce your pest and balance your pest populations. It's around an increasing biodiversity, putting up um, supportive landscapes and shelter belts, so you're not allowing your soil to blow away, um, and you're again keeping it covered, reducing erosion. A lot of the most Im- biggest issues that farmers face, but it's also it's around also integrating livestock into into the mix and using animals in different ways to manage the health of of the land itself. So there's there's many sort of approaches and they're linked into practices and I think the main reason that people don't like to, to define it as such is because practices themselves change and they're contextual. There's some practices will work really well in some places and they won't work so well in another context. And that's often it was a question that was asked quite a bit a few years back. Uh, how well, it might work well in a those ideas might work well in a high high rainfall region, but how are they going to be applied on, say, the Air Peninsula in South Australia or in the wheat belt in WA? So context is really really important um but others will will talk more about the ecology between your ears and and the landscape between your ears so that's why i think our courses in regenerative agriculture we bring bring in the philosophy of regenerative agriculture because it's not just about the way that you manage the landscape it's actually about a bit of a shift in how you look at and understand the landscape in a more holistic view Mm. So it's it's about understanding the, the interlinkages between the biology on your farm and the chemistry, and the productivity as well. And there is actually some research that's now coming out showing that over time you might be able to get a bumper crop on, in the good years, and and in in terms of put a you know put a good good amount of urea on your farm, and you're going to get you know a lot of, pump a lot of nitrogen into that system. You're going to get a lot of growth, but over time. Building up the actual resilience of that ecosystem will mean that in the bad years, things will level out. You may not have the highs, but you won't also have the lows. So there is research now demonstrating that that can, can be quite effective.
0: Wow. So so is there any links between regenerative agriculture and permaculture? Because some of the things you're talking about there kind of sound quite similar in their principles Look, I think there's,
1: there's a lot of schools of thought that are coming
0: together in terms of regenerative
1: agriculture and certainly permaculture principles and the way that you look at and manage the landscape and bring things together rather than having a one, one monocrop and how you think about putting different species together in a, in a pasture or in a, in a, indeed in a crop. So there's, there's a lot of, I think there are a lot of parallels in permaculture and certainly that's a part of the teaching that we
0: do at Southern Cross University. Wow. And so you spoke a lot as well at the start there about soil health and the importance of soil health to regenerative agriculture. Would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the soil and why it's so important?
1: Yeah, so I mean there's been uh, dreaming stories of the the soil for Thousands of years, and the importance of the soil—you know—as the foundation of all life. Even the ancient Mesopotamians, you know, 10,000 years ago, in and, and the Fertile Crescent, worshipped soil as the foundry of life itself. What we're doing now is shifting from looking at the soil as has been done over the last 50 years from this medium to hold stuff in to a living breathing process of cycling minerals and life that in itself is quite regenerative so having a healthy soil bringing carbon into that you're allowing those nutrients to cycle is going to have a much more balanced outcome and be able to support hopefully uh the the crop and the produce that you're wanting to to raise from them
0: And so why is it important to keep the soil covered?
1: Well, if, if it blows away, <laughs> the research that I've been doing with the Soil CRC, we look at a whole suite of issues that farmers face, and we have a list of these are sort of ten soil issues, and erosion comes up as number one in in most areas um, in terms of, of land challenges, and whether it's wind or water. So your soil blows away. It takes decades to establish a soil, and it takes a day for it to wash away. So if you've got if you've got good soil cover then you're going to massively mitigate from that. But it's not just about that. It's actually also about allowing the biology of the soil to be able to develop over time. And not disturbing a soil is, was, has been found in the research to be one of you know, the, the most key ways to support
0: the biodiversity to increase and, and find balance in the soil. And how do farmers or people who are interested in farming, particularly with livestock, how would they manage or go about managing having livestock and the potential of compression of soil with livestock on their land.
1: Mm, yeah, I think the the way that time controlled or cell grazing works is the idea of it's more intensive periods, but then there's a period of rest. So what you have rather than having one sort of herd that has a range of a large area, which inevitably will find its favourite spot and hang out and then wander around and, and get the bits of grass it can, you're actually intensively grazing it in one particular area. So they um, will graze the grass down to a certain level but there is a bit of a sweet spot, and then you move them on. So then the land has a period of time that will then be rest. So that's that's basically how it's mitigated. But also, when you go out and you look at some of these areas that have, have been grazed, they're not just leaving footprints; they're leaving manure. They're you know kicking that into the soil, and they sort of as long as you get that sweet spot and it's not overgrazed, then you, you know there's there's quite different levels of grass height, and things can regenerate
0: over that period of rest. Mm, so it can be quite positive for the land then to to have that relationship with livestock to be able to regenerate with their... Um, manure and perhaps their urine as well.
1: Hmm. Yeah, indeed, of course. And this sort of work you know, being undertaken and, and it's a lot of it is down to farmers who are just trying things out and they've found, for example, they had a massive reduction in worming issues in some of the cattle when they brought chickens into the mix because they'd eat all the little worms in the grass. So it might, might be actually by integrating other animals in that mix as well.
0: Right. Wow. So how important are the practices of regenerative agriculture in the face of climate change?
1: I think it's it's absolutely essential and in terms of reducing our vulnerability my research is showing that there are still a good proportion of farmers in some areas who who don't believe that climate change is due to humans and that there's not much we can do about it because it's not down to us but even if you have that view what we're seeing is it's only going to be of benefit to have these resilience building processes to be covering yourself following these processes and indeed trying to reduce inputs as well because inputs are really expensive and what we've found now as uh, you know since the war in Ukraine and the cost of fossil fuels have, has really gone up. We've seen how closely the urea and nitrogen is linked in by that harbour process so how dependent that is for producing nitrogen money. So reducing inputs is uh, might also have its um, financial incentives. You know, the crop prices have gone up by 400 know, percent And that's had a huge impact on the viability and the way that some farmers have been doing things. And as a result, they told me in the Central West they're doing rotational cropping again and starting to bring rotations back into the mix rather than just putting that urea on year after year. So it's it's some really interesting things there. And you know, and, and as a researcher, I think it's positive to see change, but it's a shame to see that. You know, often it happens when people are really having difficult times, and whereas. In some areas now, they're having bumper crops. Like on the Eyre Peninsula, they've actually had a really good year. And can we then work with people to make those changes in the good years rather than when they're absolutely on Struggle Street because they're going to have more capacity to do it, to make those changes. A lot of farmers are looking for the research. They're looking for the guidance. That They're looking for trusted sources who are going to give them clear guidance on what to do. And the whole landscape of farming is changing and what we're finding is that a lot of areas, um, farmers may have little background in farming at all, the, the landholders, and they just bring in an agronomist and they rely on that agronomist to make the decisions for them and they pay that agronomist year to year. And and even that might really drive the way that decisions are made if that farm, you know, farmer's wanting the bottom line to be fulfilled. Agronomist is going to say, well, let's put as much urea on it as we can to get that bumper crop rather than look at over the long period of time. And equally, when you have, say, corporate-owned farms, you might have a similar thing. And we've certainly found in the research that family farms that have been handbound through generations and are intended to stay in the family – they will think over much longer time periods, and I think that's really important as well. So we, so family farmers do think over longer periods of time, and that really does lead to more consideration of, okay, how do we ensure that this farm is going to be here into the future? Actually, the, the thing that has come out of my research that I think is really, really positive is that so? We've now run surveys across six regions in Australia, and we send out mail out surveys, and and we get about two thousand farmers in each region. We get about thirty percent of them back, and across all of the regions that we've studied, the most important thing to farmers comes out number one, just about every time, is to have the ability to pass on a healthy environment to the next generation. So, it's the goal. It is really important to farmers, but. Things do get in the way sometimes. And what we're doing is working with local groups to try and find out, well, how can they support those farmers to to meet all of the goals that they're wanting to meet in terms of keeping a productive and healthy landscape for the future.
0: Mm, So important in the face of climate change to be thinking about the future. And I guess as well, speaking about that, we can all agree that it's incredibly important to have sustainable and available food sources and to support farmers and to support the agriculture industry. And it's also really important as well to maintain outside of agriculture ecology. So that being like forests and desert landscapes and swamps and so on and so forth is there any principles within regenerative agriculture that also supports the regeneration of i guess yeah forest landscapes and natural wild habitat is there a way that they can coexist so we still have enough food production and food source and we're still supporting our farmers
1: that's a very important question because i know we have uh, you know we've signed up to put a real halt on our species loss and uh, and that that's an absolutely critical issue for our time as well as climate change and of course climate change further exacerbates species she's lost as well so what we're finding is that farmers who are implementing these practices whether they consider themselves to be regenerative farmers or not is that they actually have more more of a caring view on on the environment as well so a lot of these farmers are also um, often they'll have a supportive landscape that will be made of native bushland but there are others who sort of want to do it but just don't see the financial viability of doing so and that comes down to well, how do we manage our landscapes? And I actually have a bit of a bit of a, a view on this. That I think we break it up a bit too much, and then we sort of, you know, we've broken things up into into national parks and private lands, and. We have a whole set of rules for for one, and different rules for the other, and different funding for one and the other, and they don't necessarily connect. And certainly through the New South Wales government, they've just changed the rules so riparian zones, which are the the edge of the rivers, have, have gone down from being 30 metres wide down to five. So riparian zones can be a really important corridor for the wildlife to be able to connect up. See, when you've got a river, the rivers are pretty well connected through. So what I'd love to see is a different look at how we do conservation across landscapes and um, rather than really complex schemes and payments, why not just have a stewardship scheme in terms of farmers who want to restore their and support their riparian zone, give them a financial con- contribution. That's what happens around the world. They do it in the States, they do it in Europe and in the UK and um, I think it's about, it's about 8 billion pounds, a year i'm sorry i think eight billion dollars sorry goes to um, environmental stewardship schemes for farmers and our farmers are competing against those markets where those farmers have that supplementary income where australia sort of subsidies is a bit of a dirty word but i'll tell you what the fossil fuel company is getting plenty of those so why not our farmers as well and i think that if they want to look after the landscape they do generally but to be able to look after the biodiversity, I think more financial incentives would be really good. Because what what they're seeing at the moment is national parks as a, can be viewed as a liability because the funding has been cut back and cut back. And farmers around Kyogre were telling me there's real, there's been a real weed problem, and then they see that as going coming onto their land, and then they have to manage this sort of biosecurity issue. So trying to look at our landscape more holistically in terms of just how we zone things. Who's responsible for what? I mean, maybe it's just pie in the sky, but I think we could
0: do it better. I agree 100% and I definitely think that farmers need more government support and incentives to be able to do that. So some of your research, which you also spoke about earlier um, with the coal sim gas research, it focused a lot on the idea of social licences in regards to major developments Mm. How important is it for developments not just to have economic benefits but also be supported by the community and what are the impacts of a development going ahead without local support?
1: Very good question. So... So social licence to operate, it was always put down in the literature as an intangible idea that communities can basically have a say in whether a development or an industry or project goes ahead. And what is really, really clear in in the social licence literature and in my own research is that if people don't feel like they're a part of the process, if they don't feel like the process is fair, then they're far, far less likely to accept it. And even if they then outcome of that process is something they don't particularly like. If they feel that it has been a genuine, transparent and equitable process, they'll be more likely to accept it. And, And that's a big part of it whereas what often will happen with a development is that an industry will come into an area and just basically start throwing money at sports clubs and other other groups and and just start sort of getting matesy with people and and then and find their way in and make connections but they won't necessarily actually be very clear about what they're doing and there's different types of engagement there's there's a sort of there's a whole ladder of engagement, and at the very bottom you sort of you're you're telling people what you're doing, and at the very top people are feeling empowered and a part of the process, and they're engaged in that process. So, um, if people are at the top of the ladder, you're much more likely to be able to move forward as an industry or a project or indeed an organisation.
0: Mm. And are you at the moment working on any projects or research through SCU with your students or with just yourself? Well,
1: at the moment, I'm working on quite a lot of projects. I'm managing two national projects for the Soil Cooperative Research Centre. So we've got the National Survey Project that's ongoing. We've completed part one and part two and we've just applied for funding for part three to be able to repeat all these surveys so we can look at how things are changing across farming systems in australia i'm also looking at a big project which is working with grower groups across australia trying to understand how's knowledge being shared what are the different ways in which farmers are getting information and where are the people they're getting information from where are they getting it from and and so we're trying to understand what's the information where it's coming through i've got a quite a few phd students doing some really interesting work at the moment i've got matt alexanderson who's looking at regenerative agriculture Culture, and he's looking at the, a practice-based analysis. So, people, the, basically, he's identified this disconnect between farmers. They may not see themselves as being doing regenerative agriculture, but they may be doing a whole range of the practices that relate to those key ideas of regenerative agriculture. I've got Linda who's looking at women, and Linda and also Annalise who are both looking at women in farming and their different perspectives and what they bring and how their different knowledges work in farming systems. Also got a student who, who looked at the, um, Amanda's looking at the gas-fired recovery from COVID and the dialogue and the narratives put forward by the Scott Morrison government. So that's going to be an absolute firecracker when she's finished and she's very close now. So very interesting stuff there around how that was all put
0: forward and put together.
1: So very, very interesting stuff there.
0: That would be a fascinating read. (laughs) It will. Okay. So last question then. So for viewers, listeners, well, we don't have any viewers, but for listeners and (laughs) myself, if we wanted to follow the work that you're doing and keep up to date, I know as well, not to bring in a new topic, but you also ran as an independent last year. Yes, I did. <laughs> so if we want to be able to follow a potential future campaign or follow potential research, where can we find you?
1: Well, like I do have I do have a website and um a Facebook group, but like I it's a, it's a really interesting thing you know I, I um you know I mentioned you know way back 20 years ago when I first studied at Southern Cross University at the end of my science degree I'm like why aren't people listening to the science you know and and in 2020 at the end of 2021 when the sort of the, the climate summit was happening in Glasgow and and uh people were just ignoring the science again I was like that I just thought what's the you know we've 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 got all this amazing research. What's the point in doing all this work and if if the government's just going to plain out ignore it? So that's why I thought, right, if you're not happy, somebody's got to do something about it and I decided to run as an independent and I'm really proud to be a part of what was a national movement for independence and a bit of a shift away from the status quo which I thought was really exciting, You know, actually bringing people into having conversations about politics itself you know a lot of i mean it's a lot of parallels with the research i've been doing i wrote a paper three years ago that which is activist is a dirty word and and politics itself is a dirty word you know it's something we're not supposed to talk about i don't do politics i don't talk about politics well you tell me one thing that isn't in some way related to politics you know it's the decisions that shape our lives it was the introductory sentence of my honours thesis you know people should have a say in the decisions that shape their lives and I didn't feel that that was happening with the government so I ran as an independent. I wasn't elected but fortunately a lot of independents were and they didn't get the balance of power and the, the government's in now are still approving gas projects which is concerning when we're in this period of climate disruption but we did shift the dial, communities got together and shifted the dial and I'm really, really proud to have been a part of that here in Page. Um, but I'm also really proud and, and happy and to be back in my job at Southern Cross University and to be honest, that's probably where I'm going to focus my efforts. I think, you know, now there are people in, in Parliament who are listening. That's a really amazing opportunity and, you know, it's um, it's a very, very tough, tough life as well. You know, I was down in Canberra last week meeting with Zali Stegall and Dr. Sophie Scamps and, you know, they're exhausted. <laughs> they work so, so, so hard. So I think there's a really important role that we can continue to play as academics in generating good independent research that can be used by policymakers and you know, indeed parliamentarians in making really Important decisions that are going to shape the lives of not the people here just locally, but across Australia. And as I said, and as Dr. Sophie scumps said in her maiden speech, you know how we respond to these floods and how we how we embed the adaptation into our climate policy is is a real statement of how we move forward as a nation. And I think we're in really interesting times. We're in really exciting times when that intersection of of science and policy and society are actually coming back together again, which is great to see.
0: Yeah, and really nice as well to hear that we are in exciting times despite everything else that's going on. There are some amazing changes that are happening.
1: Indeed, there are. There are many people working very hard on, 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 uh, on all this great stuff.
0: Yeah, I agree, including yourself. And thank you so much for being here today. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and to learn about the knowledge that you have. It was such a pleasure.
1: Thank you for the invitation, River.
0: We would like to acknowledge the widjabal Wiable people of Bunjalung Country as the traditional owners of this land. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging.